can't even remember how we start. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. everybody welcome, welcome to Scattered. To Scattered. <laughs> Jill, we need you. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries. And we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. So welcome back to Scattered after quite a long break. Um, we're going to be looking at as the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which used to be seen as one book, but it's now seen as two. It's good when we're starting a new book or series to look at some context and background. So ladies, who wrote this book or these books? Most people generally ascribe these books. Nobody's entirely sure, nobody can say for certain, um, but generally it is thought that um, the historical real person Ezra uh, actually contributed quite heavily to the book, even if he didn't write the entire thing himself. Mm, Ezra, he was a um, descendant of Aaron, right? So he's kind of a scribe, scholar kind of guy, wasn't he? I, I read that he probably would have written this about 450 BC, which was probably after all of this stuff had happened and he was kind of wanting to record it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'd never noticed that mm. before, that actually these Ezra and Nehemiah together cover about 100 years worth of history and that the book of Ezra actually starts prior to when he was like 80 years before he was even alive. Um, mm. Yeah, that was yeah, interesting. Yeah, because we don't, we don't hear about him until chapter eight, I don't think. It's actually more about Zerub. Zerubbabel at first isn't it yeah the first six chapters of the book of Ezra is really about the struggle to rebuild the temple isn't it like the first wave of the first return and it's not really until after chapter six that we start seeing anything yeah like you said Mary like from seven onwards we hear Ezra mentioned it's it's a whole chunk of history that he talks about before and so we we do need to understand what that history is don't we because they've put that there on purpose and um, it's not just a oh let's just give a quick summary just a bit of background it's this is important for the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah yeah because the context of this book is that the Israelites are still in exile. They were taken into exile by the Babylonians, weren't they? And then um, the Persian Empire has taken over the Babylonian Empire. Um, and now this king of Persia, Cyrus, who we read about here, he is about to make this decree about how some of the uh, Israelites can go back and start to rebuild some of their land. The first four verses there is kind of saying, is pointing, isn't it, towards the, this is the fulfillment of those sections in Jeremiah 25 and 29. Like, this is the future and the hope that I that I promised you. And this is the fulfillment of that. You know, these, those verses in Jeremiah can be taken out of context very easily, and they frequently are. Um, but this is, you know, this whole first chapter is about, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of what was promised in 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 Jeremiah and Isaiah, you know, the in um, verse four, the use of the word survivor is very similar to the word remnant, which to these Jews would have been a um, reminder of the um, promise in uh, Isaiah chapter 10 about 
that you know I will keep a remnant. Um, it, all of it is pointing to the to the prophecies that occurred before and saying this is the fulfillment. Yeah, because I always think the Jews are a little bit too into their history. Um, but actually, it is really important. Like, as in, I don't, when I first read books like this that cover, you know, big periods of history, I sometimes, you know, with long lists of names and, you know, how many silver things were gathered and things like that, I find it a little difficult to read. Um, but they obviously f- find it really important. And yeah, you're right. It's, it's that the bigger picture is that this is to do with God's promises. And so even though it doesn't feel <clears throat> as important to us, it actually is. Because if God is a promise-keeping God and has proved himself a promise-keeping God to these people, then that does totally apply to us. Yeah, and and just to carry the sort of important reminders to the Jews um, a bit further, even with the list of uh, what the things that they're allowed, that they take back to Jerusalem with them. In verse six of chapter one, it says, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. And that even that would probably have reminded the Jews of Exodus when um, Moses led them out of Egypt and they took loads of silver and gold and everything with them. You know, it would have just been a reminder. This is a promise keeping God, um, not just with the prophecies, but also I have done it before and I am doing it again. So important for them. Yeah. So at this time period, the people are in, well, they, they're initially taken by Babylon and Jeremiah prophesied this and also um, Isaiah and actually even Isaiah mentioned King Cyrus by name in chapters 44 and 45. And it's interesting to think, you know, this is also overlapping with the period time period of Daniel being in Babylon. And it would be interesting to think, you know, he could potentially be there with the king, sharing with him these scriptures. And then the king being prompted, yeah, let me do this. Because it quite um, it happens quite early in the reign of King Cyrus. He decides to make this decree. So what, what did his decree say to the people? Just thinking about the history of his decree. So I think it's important to say that um, Cyrus was a Persian king. So it was the Babylonians that took off the Israelites into exile. And then um, the Persian Empire actually defeated the Babylon Empire. No idea when, but... And the Persians kind of uh, policy was quite different to the Babylonians. So they had much more... They were much more to do with integration and letting different peoples who they'd conquered observe their traditions um, and they had much more of a respect for local customs and beliefs and it was interesting and you get this feeling if you read a bit around the history of why the Persians did that it was it was kind of you know if they knew that the Jewish people for example were happy worshipping their god and happy under their reign then they would hopefully intercede on behalf of the Persian king and therefore he would get more good things and get more favor so it's kind of a for the benefit of the Persian empire but it was definitely a different approach to the Babylonians Mm. um so yeah he issued this decree in line with that yeah I do think it's important to say that he's not uh, a follower of the Jewish god he is a polytheist and he's basically hedging his bets and it 
a political move as well as a theological one. Like just in case this God does actually intercede and can actually work, let's um, let me hedge my bets and encourage them to intercede on my behalf. And he's extended a diplomatic courtesy, but he is it's a political move as well. Yeah, because in verse um, three, he says even he says he is the God who is in Jerusalem. So he's almost confining God to a certain place rather than mm. being the God of all. Mm. Yeah, so the decree is, isn't it, that the Jewish exiles who want to, so it's like people's own choice, whoever wants to has the right to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, right? So he kind of makes this mm. speech and survivors are allowed to go back and kind of rebuild. Is that the decree? And that they are allowed to take the free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So they're allowed to take the things that were originally taken from Jerusalem. We see at the end of chapter one, they're allowed to take, take it back. Yeah, which is amazing, isn't it? Like, it is kind of a little picture of restoration. Like, what was plundered is now being restored. It's kind of a theme in the Bible. Because if you think about it, I was reflecting on, if you read, like, Lamentations, that was the situation that Israel was left in. Like, Jerusalem was absolutely decimated and in ruins. And just there were a few kind of farmhands left to tend the ground and it's just incredibly sad, the kind of dis- destruction and grief that you read if you read Lamentations. I think if you're going to study Ezra, you should read the last bit of Chronicles, maybe the last chapter. But it's interesting, verse 21 of chapter 36 of Chronicles, it says, The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed. So, so that's an interesting kind of other perspective on this, isn't it? But then that's what I think, you know, the end of Second Chronicles, the end of Two Chronicles, where it says Jerusalem captured and burned, and it just descri- describes the, the desolation of Jerusalem. I think that's what makes the end of chapter one of Ezra so beautiful, that last bit um, where it says in verse 11, when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem, you know, that that little, it's almost like a throwaway line, but it's a major, major turning point in Jewish history. This, this is a big deal that they are being brought back from Babylonia to Jerusalem, to this desolated land. But God has promised that they would go back and they're being able to take the temple vessels with them. It's a massive, massive deal. So after this decree, how do the people of God respond? Well, we see twice in this passage, don't we? It talks about God moving the hearts of people. So in verse one, we see he moved the heart of Cyrus. And then in verse five, everyone whose heart had moved prepared to go up to build the house. And I mean, we're going to see in the next chapter that not all of them go back, but it is really a remnant that go back. But there's definitely support for them, isn't there? Like all their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold. So it is like a real sense of these people being sent and blessed. It's not kind of a breaking away of a certain group of people. It's definitely a kind of time of generous generosity in their response. And I love that thing about what it says, you know, the part where it talks about um, the Lord stirring the spirit, how Cyrus probably thought, you know, here's me making my great political move, my great theological move, hedging my bets. But actually, he was never the one who was in control. It was always the Lord who was stirring his heart to do this decree. 
And then um, again in verse five, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, like God, people think that it's them themselves that are doing these actions, but actually it's the spirit of the Lord who is behind them. And I definitely find that in life, we do get stirrings of the heart from God. Like sometimes we don't realize they're from God, but oft- and often the thing that you're being stirred to do is quite an, a thing that you might find unnatural to you. I remember when I decided to study nursing, I before then had never considered it, never wanted to do it. And then I had to go and have an operation in hospital and I came out of hospital and it was like everything had changed. I just absolutely knew I had to be a nurse. And even though I was petrified of blood and needles and things like that. And so I just feel like was was, still am. Um, And I just feel like God does that, doesn't he? We should really listen. I know we shouldn't always be led by our hearts like, oh, my emotions want me to do this, so I'm going to do it. But I do feel like God does do that still in our own lives, like, and we should listen to that. And I guess the stirring of their spirit, they could just see it was in line with scripture, like from the the, mm-hmm. the go ahead, like Jeremiah is talking about this, Isaiah is talking about this, and then they can see like this is God wanting them to be led back to the the promised land and so they really feel yeah I guess like the stirring that they're getting is in line with everything that they're reading and learning and it's just yeah yeah you can't always blindly follow your heart I guess yeah it's you know if your heart's telling you to do something that isn't necessarily biblical then it's probably not (laughs) from God (laughs) I think the thing that's interesting as well about the people who in chapter in verse five it says then then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, et cetera, et cetera, is that actually it's the heads who act. It's the head, you know, everyone, they might have been stirred, but it's the heads who act. And actually, it's actually a small part of the tiny remnant that is still in Babylon that actually gets stirred into action. You know, I was, I, it was reminding me a bit of, um, you know, like that uh, in Gideon's army you know where it gets whittled down to 300 and they end up fighting this massive army but they win and it felt a bit like that like there are you know there aren't masses of Israelites left in in where they are um but there's a good number of them and yet they get whittled down further in this in this little section like it's not everyone that goes back and yet they're expected to go back and reclaim Jerusalem rebuild the temple you know, you'd have thought you were on force in numbers. Yeah, I was surprised how many people don't go back. Like, and who, I don't know whether, you know, did God stir more people's hearts than actually listened? I don't know. But it's it's challenging, isn't it? That I mean, we're going to see in the next chapter, but the numbers of people that did go back wasn't that many compared to what were actually around in those days. Try not to jump ahead. No, let's look at the next chapter. (laughs) Yeah, so looking at chapter two, um, we now face with this dreaded list. (laughs) Um, But it's very important because it's in the Bible. Um, (laughs) Yeah, why do you think Ezra lists and numbers everyone? It's a Hermione question, I feel. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how to say it without being super dull. (laughs) you're trying to say Ezra was dull (laughs) well 
chapter two looks super dull, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> it's actually a record or a um, a monument or whatever words like that to God's care and to um, the fact a testament to the fact that Israel is still there. There is, in fact, still a remnant who have been stirred to go back to Jerusalem. To an Israelite, or I think culturally, a lot of tribes in those days, to be rootless and anonymous was effectively to not exist. It was a very, very bad thing. The last thing you wanted to be. You know, like um, when we looked at the book of Ruth, uh, a few months back, it was all about how are you going to, how am I going to continue my my name? How is my name going to be continued? It was a huge deal. The whole thing hinged on how am I going to continue the name? Or am I effectively going to be written out of history? And <clears throat> excuse me, this chapter two is all about the Israelites who have not been written out of history. They are not anonymous. They are not rootless. And they have returned back to Jerusalem. It's incredibly important for them. Do you think we're meant to get a sense that to not return to Jerusalem meant that you were kind of so assimilated and settled and happy in exile that you just kind of didn't really want to go back? Do you think there's a sense of that? And that these people who God uh, stirred to go back, that they were in some sense kind of the faithful remnant? I don't know. I don't Well. Juliet might have a different opinion, but for me, I don't think it really comments on it. Um, mm. I wouldn't want to take inference. It's just these are the people who came out it, and it doesn't actually talk about the people who didn't. I guess it's just what we said earlier on about it just being a remnant. It's not the whole of the Israelite people. Um, it's it's just a couple of tribes, isn't it? It's the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and the Levites. And, you know, as we know, there's 12 tribes, and this is only a few of them. And within those tribes, this is only a few, you know, not that many people in numbers as well. We've seen lists over again before, and even the people when they were leaving Egypt and when they were entering the land, they were listed there. And this list is much diminished from those times. And I think that would have been stark to people reading. And and we'll see this later on when we read at, uh, more into what Ezra says to the people and what Nehemiah says to the people. I think, I think at this point, probably it's helpful just to go back a couple of steps and um, I thought it would be a good place to think about actually what the purpose of the author of these books was trying to get across. Like, why was he writing this? Who was, what was going on uh, with the people of God there to mean that he thought this was really important to write down? So one thing was that the Jewish community at the time was struggling to maintain their identity as a people of God. So they were struggling to be separate to the people following other gods around them and so this is speaking into that reminding them of what is important the the presence of god is important the word of god is important and so the whole book speaks into a community that's trying to work out what it means to be separate from uh, the people around them and also at the time like they're facing really severe 
religious and moral challenges because they were living in different areas with um with people serving different gods and so yeah it was how what what does it look like to remain distinctive and faithful to god so do you mean this book was written to the diaspora of jews around the world not just a record of the people and what happened in jerusalem but it was would it have been kind of circulated around so that people could see what was happening and to encourage them towards unity and um, faithfulness in difficult contexts. Mm. Yeah, and just seeking after God. And the book of Ezra and Nehemiah sort of has three different cycles of wanting to rebuild the temple, then wanting the word, the Torah, to be central to their lives, and then wanting the walls of the city to be built in Nehemiah. And then at the end of the book, it's sort of like a disappointment. It's like, we've got these things now, mm. but like, we need more. And we're still unfaithful. And we're still sinning. And we need more. And so it gives a taste of wanting those promises all the way from um, Abraham to be fulfilled. And this is just the cycling over of, oh, this is a glimpse of what it will look like. Yeah, it falls short, doesn't it? The Bible Project video is pretty helpful on this. If you guys listening want a really helpful overview, it kind of helps you see that kind of in pictures. Mm. So I didn't put this in the questions, <laughs> but how how does... Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, how... she's going off piece. <laughs> how do these two chapters speak to us <laughs> in our circumstances when um juliet was saying a minute ago you know the israelites are struggling to maintain their identity when this was written and they're meeting a lot of religious and moral challenges i was like that is just like us you know we're living in this world and you know we the three of us are working in places where there aren't very many other people like us uh in terms of belief systems and things. And it can be easy to lose sight of, it's, it can be easy to take your eyes off the price. And so it's so good to read this kind of, this book to be like actually remembering and reminding history and promises kept is so important for us, not just God, how are you changing me now? What can you do for me? <laughs> Today, it's actually, God, let me look at what you have done, how you have been faithful, and let that shape what I am being changed into now and what is happening to me today. Yeah, and I, I think we're meant to, you know, if you you get this real, like Juliet was saying, you get this real sense of sadness around this whole thing. You know, the whole reason the Israelites were in exile was because of their sinfulness, and it's and it's it's horrendous like the you know if you look read the book of Hosea and you just see the kind of relational horror of what they how they turned mm -hmm. away from God it really hurts God and it's really painful and yet he's just so faithful like he's God doesn't turn his back on his people um he promises he makes promises to them and then he fulfills the promise mm -hmm. you know the prophecy in Jeremiah was that they would be gone 70 years and then they would come back and that's what happens and how does God do that he moves the heart of a of a you know a king who doesn't even you know know him um 
to bring them back with a, a measure of the wealth with which they left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think, isn't God gracious and patient with him and with us, therefore? You know, this is just a picture of, he, he loves his people. He doesn't give up on us. He There is, mm. you know, sadness about it, but also there's hope, isn't there, for us when we feel like, oh, this was just, I've just really messed it up too much this time or, oh, this sin in my past is just too big for God. And it's like, no, this is God. He's long-suffering, he's patient, he's kind, and he brings his people back at all costs. And, you know, the ultimate cost of bringing his people home is Jesus, like sending his son so that we could come out of exile. And that's incredibly painful for him, but he did it because he loves us. Yeah, I'm so so encouraged. Where we live, we have a ruler that doesn't follow God. And yet, mm. like, this circumstance we're in, I can help. It's so helpful reading how God was stirring King Cyrus because that's possible here too. And the other thing that's possible here is for other people's hearts to be stirred and mm. for the nations mm. to be blessed by what Christ has done. And so, yeah, it's a big encouragement on a big scale. And then I guess it's also a big encouragement for us personally, knowing that even as we read the list in chapter two, that God cares about each person, each family. And the the people at the beginning of the list are very ordinary people. And the second half is like the the Levites and people involved in the temple, the priests, and you know all of those people are important to God. And and just what you the were donkeys saying, Julia, about and the donkeys. Oh, I don't forget the donkeys. <laughs> Sorry, don't forget the donkeys. We need to. Birds, do it. I forgot about the donkey one. <laughs> For newer listeners, go back and listen. Was it an act, Joseph? Joseph, the life of Joseph. People were very concerned about. We're a bit obsessed. The brothers were very, very concerned about their donkeys. <laughs> we um, need to do a biblical history but, of donkeys through the Bible. <laughs> what Juliet was saying about you know God stirring the spirit of the leader where she is, and that and He can stir the spirits of people around her. Just as she was saying that, I just found that so encouraging, and also a weight lifted because we are working in places that are hard where there are not you know where change just is slow and it can at times feel desperate and impossible but just what Juliet was saying then just really lifted a weight off me and I was like like actually it's not for me to stir their spirit mm. you know I'm here I can um work here I and speak truth when necessary, live my life differently, but ultimately it is God who will stir their spirit. And that is encouraging and liberating. Yeah, it's a call to prayer, isn't it? Really, like, are we on our knees for the people around us um, that God would stir mm-hmm. in their spirits and, and draw them to himself? Because really, yeah, it's we can chat about Jesus with them until we're blue in the face. But really, yeah, God... God is the one that does it. It is really challenging. So we look forward to joining you again next week when we look at chapter three. Bye. 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 Bye.